Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Waite. A group of 10 First Nations in the Treaty No. 9 region are suing the Ontario government and the Canadian government for $95 billion. The claim is against the colonial government's unilateral decision-making and jurisdictional control. In the Treaty 9 area, there are 49 First Nations. So 10 First Nations putting forward a lawsuit is about 20% of the First Nations within the Treaty 9 region. To understand the lawsuit, we have to go back to the beginning of Canada's treaties with Indigenous peoples. Remember that in 1763, the King of England made a proclamation regarding the sovereignty of Indigenous people. This was also the time of the great peace between European and Anishinaabe people made official at Niagara. But after these such agreements, the Americans decided to break away from the British and French methods of colonization. In 1776, the Americans declared their independence. In their Declaration of Independence, it refers to Indigenous people as merciless savages who kill indiscriminately. And thus the stage was set for the treaties of the 1800s between Indigenous people of Turtle Island and the European and American settlers. The case argues the treaty agreed upon in the early 1900s should see these First Nations retain their decision-making governance over the lands and resources, and that Crown and Indigenous governments must consent to impactful resource development moving forward. The suit is also seeking $95 billion for breach of treaty and of duties. Lawyer Kate Kempton says the signing of the treaty itself was done in a misleading way by the Crown. They brought that written text in their pockets to talk to the leaders of the First Nations in Treaty 9 territory. They never showed them the text. They did not leave it with them. They did not describe some of the words in the written text. Canada's Treaty No. 9 was signed in 1905. Adhesions to the treaty were made in 1929 and 1930. Prior to the signing of Treaty No. 9, there were eight similar treaties already signed between post-Confederation Canada and the Indigenous inhabitants of Turtle Island, north of the Medicine Line. The first of those numbered treaties was signed in 1871. When those treaties were signed, between 1871 and 1905, the buffalo disappeared and the Americans were at war against the so-called Indians south of the Medicine Line. So in one sense... The treaties were agreements for protection by the British Canadians against the Americans. The Americans, as policy, respected the Canadian border, which had been established in 1818 through an agreement with the British. Canadian treaty commissioners travelled into the wilderness to encourage and solicit signing of treaties. This was done so that the Canadians could hold legal claim to lands and resources rather than let that claim go to the Americans. Remember that Louis Riel was hanged for treason in 1885 for wanting his Métis community to have sovereign rights in the face of British colonization. That rebellion occurred in the midst of the Canadian treaty signing process. In 1905, the treaty commissioners made it into northwestern Ontario. Then in 1906, a year after that treaty was signed, the Ontario Mining Act was passed allowing for mineral exploration by settlers in Ojibwe traditional territory. It has been a socio-economic domino effect ever since. Even after 1907, when Canada's top doctor declared that residential schools were basically death traps because of tuberculosis, 
the schools continued. In 1920, attendance at the schools became mandatory. By being forced to attend, the indigenous people were then pulled away from the land, allowing the government to declare that the land was unoccupied and unused. That declaration of unused land then allowed the government to legitimize building mines and roads and other infrastructure without first consulting with the indigenous people. The treaty doesn't say that the government will force people to live only on reserves and not be allowed to conduct their business as they have always done. In fact, the treaty says the opposite. It was the Indian Act that legitimized many racist policies against indigenous peoples and nations. But I'm not talking about the Indian Act. I'm just talking about Treaty Number 9. Treaty Number 9 doesn't say that children will be kidnapped and tortured. There was no provision or article in Treaty Number 9 for that. But because First Nations signed treaties, they were under the thumb of the Indian Act. I should say iron fist and not thumb, because basically all of the socio-economic decision-making for First Nations in Canada after the signing of treaties was made by the Canadian government. That's why First Nations have been socio-economically impoverished for so long. It was all part of the master plan. Remember, it wasn't until 1960 that Indigenous people obtained the right to vote federally in Canada. So what does Treaty No. 9 say? In part, it states, quote, And whereas the said Indians have been notified and informed by His Majesty's said commission that it is his desire to open for settlement, immigration, trade, travel, mining, lumbering, and other such purposes as to His Majesty may seem meet, a tract of country bounded and described as hereinafter mentioned, and to obtain the content thereto of his Indian subjects inhabiting the said tract, and to make a treaty and arrange with them, so that there may be peace and goodwill between them and his majesty's other subjects, and that his Indian people may know and be assured of what allowances they are to count upon and receive from his majesty's bounty and benevolence. End quote. How was settlement immigration, trade, travel, mining, lumbering, and other such purposes described to the gathered Ojibwe headmen. Was something lost in translation? Most likely. I'll read a paragraph from the book Treaty No. 9, making the agreement to share the land in far northern Ontario in 1905. Quote, Since the commissioners did not speak Ojibwe or Cree, they had to rely on others to speak for them. At Osnaburg, the official report says that trader Jabez Williams rendered great service to the party by interpreting whenever necessary. But McMartin reveals that it was the treaty's own Ojibwe guide, Jimmy Swain, who interpreted. At Fort Hope, the official report acknowledges the assistance of Father F. X. Fafard of the Roman Catholic Mission at Albany, whose thorough knowledge of the Cree and Ojibwe tongues was of great assistance during the discussion. But McMartin indicates that Sinclair Rich filled the key role. Similarly, McMartin writes that Cree HBC clerk Samuel Isserhoff acted as the commissioner's interpreter at Martin Falls, while Cree James Linklater performed this duty at Fort Albany. At Moose Factory, the official report reads, Bishop Holmes kindly interpreted the address of the commissioners, but Stewart reveals that it was George MacLeod, a Cree half-breed, 
refused admission into the treaty, who did most of the interpreting, assisted occasionally by Bishop Holmes and HBC officer Mr. Mowat. Band member and treaty signatory John Luke served as interpreter at New Post. These translators played key roles as linguistic and cultural mediators in the treaty making, and it is unfortunate that we know so little about them. End quote. It can be seen how convoluted the treaty-making process was from the beginning. It is interesting to note that one of the interpreters, George MacLeod, was not allowed to be in the treaty because of his so-called half-breed status. It is important to know that this idea was a British-Canadian convention. In previous treaty negotiations, notably Robinson Superior of 1850 and in the Northwest Rebellion of 1885, the rights of half-breeds to be included in treaties was fought for. Unfortunately, the British Canadians got their way and half-breeds were barred from inclusion in many treaties. The quoted paragraph also shows that there are disparities between the official report and what actually happened when the treaty commissioners showed up. Was the agreement made in good faith by both sides? How is it that Canada got wealthy from resources on Indigenous land while the indigenous people themselves became impoverished. Was there a hidden agenda when the commissioners urged the Anishinaabe people to sign the treaty? Definitely. As I outlined earlier, the signing of the treaty was done in a context of diminishing food resources as a result of the concerted efforts of the Americans and Canadians against the indigenous populations. The Trail of Tears, the destruction of the buffalo, and the refusal to help indigenous refugees, as promised in the just-signed treaties, created an environment of persistent hostility against native peoples across Turtle Island. Those old ideas are still present in the treaties and in the Indian Act under which most First Nations are still held. Is that something you wanted to do, or is it something you had to do, given what the United States was doing with the Inflation Reduction Act? You know, it, it's funny, David, because when you said my two priorities, I thought you were going to go with the critical minerals that Canada has that the world needs in the production of batteries, uh, and uh, the great workforce we have in Canada, which are the two priorities that, that we've been focused on. The, the resources in the ground and the resources above the ground are really Canada's uh, value proposition for, for companies coming in. If our ancestors had known what they were signing up for, I believe more of them would have refused. And there were many who were reluctant and many who did refuse. They either wound up dead or in jail or exiled. The choice was to sign or perish. What the indigenous signatories didn't realize, however, was that the Canadians wanted the indigenous people to perish even though they had signed the treaties. Canada didn't want the people... They wanted the land and the resources contained therein. I'm not making this up. One of the commissioners, who was also superintendent of Indian Affairs, Duncan Campbell Scott, said of Treaty No. 9 the following, quote, They were to make certain promises, and we were to make certain promises. But our purpose and our reasons were alike unknowable. What could they grasp of the pronouncement on the Indian tenure which had been delivered by the law lords of the crown, what of the elaborate negotiations between a dominion and a province which had made the treaty possible, what of the sense of traditional policy which brooded over the whole? Nothing. So there was no basis for argument. The simpler facts had to be stated, 
and the parental idea developed that the king is the great father of the Indians, watchful over their interests and ever compassionate. After gifts of tobacco, as we were seated in a circle in a room of the Hudson's Bay Company, the interpreter delivered this message. End quote. So there you have it, from one of the Canadian officials involved in the treaty signing process. There was no negotiation between the Crown and the bands. It was a take-it-or-leave-it choice. The Crown's representatives misled the Anishinaabe people with false promises. The Anishinaabe had signed the treaty in good faith based on what they were told by the commissioners through interpreters. For instance, I doubt that they were told that their people would be barred from participating in Canadian society and economics after signing the treaty. That goes into the realm of the Indian Act, and I doubt that the Indian Act was discussed. It reminds me of the saying, with friends like this, who needs enemies? Imagine how bad the last century would have been for us if we hadn't signed a treaty. We probably wouldn't have just lost our freedom, our language, our culture, and our dignity we'd probably be extinct. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.